This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This week I'm continuing the series A Family Affair, detailing cases of parents involving their children in murder plots. This time, a mother and daughter team up to murder family members for financial profit and to rid themselves of the burden of caring for them. This is the story of Diane and Rachel Stoudy and what would be dubbed the Antifreeze Murders. On the outside, Diane Stoudy looked like the perfect wife and mom. In fact, she was like a supermom, with a lot on her plate regarding responsibilities to home and family. Diane and her husband Mark were high school sweethearts before they married, bought a home in Springfield, Missouri, and raised a family of four children. In 2012, the couple had been married for 26 years and had three adult children, Sean, 26, Sarah, 24, and Rachel, 22 and their fourth child, Brianna, was just 11 years old. Diane was employed full-time as a nurse to provide for her family of six. She worked remotely seeing patients for United Healthcare, a position she'd held for 12 years. Her husband was the lead singer and guitarist for a local blues band. He sometimes worked a bartending shift at the clubs where they played, but Diane was the breadwinner in the family. With Diane traveling for her job, Mark was the primary caregiver of their 11-year-old Brianna who had learning disabilities. All three of the Stoudy's adult children still lived at home. The oldest, 26-year-old Sean, was on the autism spectrum and had a seizure disorder, so he needed special care. Sarah, 24, was a top student who'd recently graduated from Missouri State University on the dean's list. She was gifted in languages and made it her goal to travel the world. Sarah returned home after graduation to find a job to repay her student loans. She had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder and struggled with her moods after returning home, and she had yet to find a job. She had trouble sleeping at night and instead slept most of the day. Rachel, 22, was the child Diane had the closest relationship with. Rachel received the most praise and attention from her mother. She was also an excellent student who was often on the dean's list. She spoke four languages, played the flute, wrote poetry, and was an artist. Diane's pride for her middle child was the subject of many of her Facebook posts. Congrats! Dean's List once again, read one. Others included photos of Rachel's artwork, and there were shared compliments and jokes between Rachel and Diane. There were rarely photos or even mentions of Diane's husband or her other children on her page. Still, the Stouties appeared to be a happy family. They were devout churchgoers regularly attending Redeemer Lutheran Church in Springfield. Diane served as the church's organist, even with her busy schedule with her job, providing financially for a family of six, and seeing to the needs of her son Sean and youngest child Brianna, who needed constant attention. To neighbors, friends, and other parishioners, Diane gave all her time, attention, and devotion to others, especially her family. She was a devout Christian who often posted prayers, scriptures, and inspirational quotes on her Facebook page. 
Some marveled at her ability to keep it all together and remain so positive and upbeat. But as we know, what a person shares on social media is not always reality. And so it was with Diane Stoudy. Below the surface, the 50-year-old church organist was seething. She was sick of what she considered her burdens, namely her family. She wanted an easier life, and she wanted out of her responsibilities. She hated her husband and would later accuse him of being lazy, a drunk, possibly a drug addict, and abusive. If this were true, it would surprise everyone who knew the couple. Diane and Mark appeared to be happily married, and no one could recall even a serious argument between the two. But of course, what goes on behind closed doors? But the truth was, Diane Stoudy was determined to change her life, and she wasn't going to do it in the usual way, by getting a divorce or helping her adult children launch into independent lives. No, she had a permanent solution in mind, and she decided that her favorite child, Rachel, would be the one to help her carry out this plan. April 8, 2012 was Easter Sunday. Diane Stoudy called emergency services to her Springfield, Missouri home. When EMTs arrived, they found 61-year-old Mark Stoudy dead. Diane told police that her husband had been unwell for several days, but had refused to go to the hospital. It appeared that he died in his sleep. When Mark's death was investigated, Diane said that her husband lived a very unhealthy lifestyle. She said he drank to excess, ate poorly, didn't exercise, and she suspected he was doing drugs, a result of his hanging out in clubs and bars with his band. An autopsy determined that Mark Stoudy had not died of a drug overdose, but of natural causes. There was one detail the medical examiner noted, however. A ring of blood was found around Mark's mouth. But this could have been caused by any number of medical reasons. A funeral was held, and people noted that Diane seemed very unemotional for a woman who just lost her spouse of nearly three decades. But everyone grieves differently, and perhaps Diane preferred to keep her emotions private. Mark Stoudy's body was cremated, and his ashes were scattered in a lake. Diane received $20,000 in life insurance that she used to purchase a newer home in a nicer neighborhood of Springfield. Five months later, tragedy struck the Stoudy home once more, when the oldest child, 26-year-old Sean, was found dead on his bedroom floor. This time, Diane reported that her son had a history of seizures and had been experiencing flu-like symptoms, including diarrhea, nausea, body aches, and headaches. Diane was a nurse, after all, and if she'd said her son had been gravely ill, most had no doubt she would have immediately sought medical intervention. It was just so sad, people thought for this poor woman to have lost her husband and son, one right after the other. Before an autopsy was performed, someone anonymously reported their suspicion that Diane might have contributed to her son's death. However, once the autopsy was completed, the medical examiner concluded the most likely cause of death was Sean's prior health issues. He had a congenital kidney defect, and the seizures he'd experienced throughout his life had caused brain damage. The autopsy report contained one interesting detail. A blood ring was found around Sean's mouth. This time, Diane didn't even hold a funeral, but had Sean cremated soon after he died. She received a $15,000 life insurance payout 
from another policy. In one year, the Stoudy family had gone from six members to four. Diane and her three daughters, Sarah, Rachel, and Brianna, remained. The following summer, in June of 2013, 24-year-old Sarah fell ill. Her condition continued to worsen over several days. When she was finally taken to the hospital, it was discovered that her kidneys were failing and there was bleeding in her brain. Doctors ran every test they could to determine what caused such a catastrophic illness but remained baffled. Another thing that baffled the hospital staff was Diane Stoudy's demeanor while her daughter fought for her life. Sarah's mother acted as if she either didn't care or completely denied how sick her daughter was. She joked around with the hospital staff, rarely asked about her daughter's condition, and talked excitedly about a planned vacation to Florida. Someone else who knew Diane Stoudy was also alarmed by her behavior. Jeff Sippy was a pastor at the church where the Stoudies attended. He'd grieved with the family when two members died in such close proximity to one another. Now he learned Sarah was also seriously ill and hospitalized. Yet Diane continued to come to organ rehearsals and attended church without even a mention that her daughter was sick. Sippy thought this was incredibly odd, and it aroused his suspicions. There had been talk among the congregation when Diane's husband and then her son died so suddenly. It seemed a bit strange, if not downright suspicious, and some wondered to themselves if there wasn't something fishy going on. Of course, no one wanted to accuse a grieving wife and mother without cause. That would be cruel. So most kept their suspicions to themselves, including Pastor Jeff, who viewed Diane as unruffled by her family members' deaths. But after he learned that Sarah was hospitalized, he could no longer keep quiet. He called investigators and reported a tip anonymously. He told them they might want to look into Diane Stoudy regarding the deaths of Mark and Sean Stoudy. He informed them that a third member of the Stoudy family was now also ill with a mysterious and potentially life-threatening condition. Detective Neil McAmos was assigned to investigate. He looked at the autopsy reports of Mark and Sean Stoudy learned about the life insurance payouts Diane had received after their deaths, and went to the hospital where Sarah was being treated. Everyone he spoke with said Diane was acting very detached and inappropriate for the gravity of the situation. He decided to bring Diane in for questioning. On June 20, 2013, Sarah Stoudy was still in the hospital battling to survive when her mother was brought to the police station for an interview. Detective McAmos said he'd learned about Sarah's sudden illness and asked Diane if she had any idea what might have caused it. Diane continued to repeat that she had no idea, but the detective pressed her to speculate. Was Sarah depressed? Did she think she might have taken something to harm herself? Diane said that every test had been run at the hospital, and anything like that had been ruled out. I just have no idea, an unemotional Diane continued to repeat. You don't, so you don't think she's the type of person that would try to harm herself? or? I really don't know. I'm, I don't know. Okay. Part of me says yeah, part of me says no. I don't know. Has she, did she mention anything about, you know, wanting to harm herself or no. nothing at all? No. Okay. No. I, I know she had been not sleeping as good as she's been in the past, but other than that, 
I hadn't really noticed much change. Okay. But then, you know, I don't know. <laughs> she mentioned her family had a genetic predisposition for heart attacks and strokes. But she said Sarah had always been healthy, unlike her father and her brother. Detective McAmis had learned from the hospital staff that all the tests they'd run had come back negative, and they told him they'd begun to wonder if Sarah could have been poisoned deliberately or inadvertently. They hadn't found evidence of the most common types of poisons used to harm or kill someone, but explained that there were many poisons, some more difficult to detect. McAmis wondered if Diane's nursing background might give her knowledge about more undetectable toxins. Diane said Sarah was sick for a week before she was hospitalized. Now it was Diane who began to speculate. She didn't think Sarah would take medication like pills to harm herself, she said. She wondered if she'd ingested some household cleaner to harm herself. The detective asked why Sarah might have used that method of all ways to harm herself. Diane responded by saying she was trained as a nurse, not a psychologist, so she had no idea. But she confirmed that if Sarah had attempted to poison herself with something like that, it would harm her kidneys, but it wouldn't result in a brain bleed. If she did take some cleaners or something, could that, I mean, could that essentially? Well, I can see that hurting the kidneys, but that wouldn't cause her brain. I mean, she had a brain bleed. Oh, she had a brain yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's like, that's, I can't figure that one out. Little by little, the detective applied pressure by asking Diane the same questions in different ways. He asked her to theorize what could have caused her family members to fall ill and, two to die. She kept contradicting herself, and some of her answers eventually led the detective to the truth. Diane mentioned antifreeze as something that they could have taken. They? Yes, Diane said. She thought Mark and Sean might have both drank antifreeze to commit suicide. The detective finally zeroed in on Diane and gave her an opening to admit that she knew how they died because she was involved. Diane tried to deny it, saying, I didn't hurt my kids if that's what you're insinuating. I may not be the best mother in the world, but I didn't hurt my kids. She did admit that she had a bad marriage. She couldn't stand her husband, she confessed. She called him an abusive drunk and said, When Mark died, it was actually a relief. I just don't tell people that. Diane then wondered out loud whether she needed a lawyer. At that point, the detective read the Miranda rights, explaining her right to remain silent or to have a lawyer present before she answered any more questions. She said she understood, but continued talking. She had purchased antifreeze off the internet, she confessed, because the type sold online didn't contain the bittering agent found in antifreeze sold in retail stores. This is added to antifreeze sold to the general public to make the poisonous ingredient ethylene glycol detectable. Without the bittering agent, the poison was odorless and tasteless. Diane had begun lacing Mark's drinks with the antifreeze. And Sean, the detective asked? Yes, after Mark died, she began poisoning her son by putting antifreeze in the soda he frequently drank. Why did she want her husband dead? I hated his guts, Diane revealed. He would throw things at me. He would throw things at the kids. I guess I just had enough. What about Sean? Why would she want him dead, too? He was autistic, Diane said. But it wasn't this that made him a target, as much as the fact that Sean, quote, interfered in whatever I would do. Sean was more than a pest, Diane complained. She'd killed her son because he was annoying. Nope, 
Definitely not the best mother in the world. The reason why Diane set out to get rid of her children was shocking in its cold-heartedness. Sean was a drain on her time and was annoying. Sarah wouldn't get a job and had student loans to pay, so she was a drain on Diane financially. Oh yeah, and she mentioned she was nosy, very nosy. And one more thing, she had another $15,000 life insurance policy on Sarah's life, so there was that. Again, this all got started. You're saying Mark is the first one. There's nobody before Mark, not in your past life or not in, okay, Mark's the first one. And it just got started. You said you hated his guts and I just you couldn't take, it, couldn't take anymore. it anymore. And so you did some research on the internet about antifreeze poisoning. You were aware of, you know, the taste and things of that nature, like you said. Then you ordered some antifreeze and then you, you gave it to him for a few, few days before it finally started to kick in and work. Okay. And then with Sh- with Sean, you said you just, again, we talked about he just became such a pest and bothering you, always interfering, things of that nature. And um, you said it took a couple days, right? A couple before it started to kick in on him. And then with Sarah, you talked about, you know, she, she wasn't getting a job and then she had these student loans and you were going to end up having to pay for them. She wasn't working. You said you guys argued a lot. Was there anything else more or is that pretty much? That's pretty much. And you just had had it with her as well. Okay, and then you said it took about four days before it started to work on her. Okay, and there's you didn't use anything, just antifreeze. There's nothing else at all. Okay. As for her two youngest children, Rachel and Brianna, she told the detective that they weren't targeted because she loved them and they, quote, weren't a burden. Diane Stoudy confessed to the poisoning deaths of her husband and two of her children. But an even darker twist to this story was about to be discovered. She'd done so with the help of her middle child, Rachel. As police searched the Stoudy home for evidence of the murders, they discovered Rachel's journal. In one journal entry written almost a year before her father's death, she'd written, quote, It's sad when I realize how my father will pass on in the next two months. Sean, my brother, will move on shortly after. It'll be tough getting used to the changes, but everything will work out, end quote. This was evidence that Diane and Rachel had planned to kill Mark and Sean for some time. Diane didn't implicate anyone else in the murder plot. Rachel was her favorite. She would have never given her up to the cops. Rachel's diary had done that. Rachel was brought in for questioning. At first, they asked her general questions about her family. Her father was nice and much more lenient with his kids than her mom, she said. Yes, her parents did fight, but nothing out of the ordinary. Rachel said it was mostly about money. She said that Sean couldn't live on his own, although they'd tried a program once to help him live independently, but it hadn't worked out. She said her brother wasn't a burden and mainly kept to himself. She classified Sean as low-maintenance. Her sister Sarah was, quote, unmotivated and mostly just sat around. Rachel said her mom was patient with her older sister, but really wanted her to get a job. The detective revealed to Rachel that her mother had confessed to poisoning her father, Sean, and Sarah. Rachel broke down crying and denied knowing anything about it. She claimed the only person her mother had ever talked about harming was herself. Then they brought out the purple diary and surprised Rachel with her own words. Rachel quickly caved and confessed, providing the details of the plan to poison her family members 
and how she became involved. Her mother had complained about the stress she was under for a long time, Rachel said. She confided in Rachel that her father, older sister, and brother had become too much to bear. Rachel was extremely close to her mother and had always been singled out for special attention and affection. She became extremely worried about her mother's threats to, quote, off herself if something didn't change. Discussions between the two over several months resulted in a plan to, quote, get rid of the problem. Mom brought it up, and then we discussed it, Rachel said, about poisoning the family members. They had considered suffocating them or administering a fatal dose of medication. They finally settled on antifreeze because it, quote, would be easier. Diane told Rachel it had to be a specific type of antifreeze so it wouldn't be detected when mixed into food or liquids. At first, they only planned to poison her father, Rachel said. When her mother included Sean in the plan, she objected, suggesting they put him in an assisted living facility instead. But her mother insisted he had to go. She also thought poisoning Sarah was unnecessary because Rachel believed they had options to move her elsewhere. Ultimately, Rachel agreed to go along with what her mother wanted. She explained that her mother was the only person who understood her, and she was afraid that she would kill herself because of all the stress she was under. Prosecutors later speculated that Rachel wanted her mother all to herself. They discovered a strange note written like a poem in Rachel's purse. It read, Once there were six, and now there are only three. Only the quiet ones are left, my mom, my little sister, and me. However, Rachel admitted that the ultimate plan was only two. Her mother had already decided to poison her little sister Brianna as well. She had a learning disability, Rachel explained. Together, mother and daughter had become serial poisoners, killing two and almost ending the life of a third loved one. Sarah recovered after spending a month in the hospital but suffered severe organ and neurological damage. Once a brilliant student with a bright future, Sarah would require a full-time guardian and be moved into an assisted living facility to be cared for. Brianna would be placed in foster care. On May 5, 2015, Rachel Stoudy pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder and one count of first-degree assault. As part of her guilty plea, she was required to give details of the crime to the judge. Rachel stated that it was her mother who came up with the plan and purchased the antifreeze online. Rachel was in charge of mixing it into the drinks, although Diane mixed them sometimes too. Her father's sports drinks were spiked with the poison usually twice daily. When her father started becoming ill, Rachel would only mix one drink daily, but her mother noticed and started giving him more doses. She estimated that her father had been served about five bottles of antifreeze, a few tablespoons at a time, over several weeks. Sean and Sarah were poisoned the same way. Sarah was very sick, and Rachel felt her death was imminent. She said she began to freak out, not wanting another person to die in the house. After Sean died, I moved into his room, and it was awful, awful in there, Rachel explained. I kept feeling things in there. I just didn't want that again. She convinced her mom to take Sarah to the hospital to die. As for her youngest sister, she admitted that she and her mother had decided, quote, she had to go too. I know there's no way in hell I'd be able to take care of her, Rachel said. Rachel was sentenced to life in prison in the Missouri Department of Corrections. She will be considered for parole after serving 42 and a half years behind bars. 
Diane Stoudy pled guilty to two counts of murder and one count of assault. She submitted an Alford plea, a strategy in which defendants can maintain their innocence, but stipulate that the evidence against them would likely persuade a judge or jury to find them guilty. In this way, Diane didn't have to admit to her crime and avoided a jury trial and possibly a harsher sentence. Sarah made a statement to be read into the record at sentencing, quote, I forgive my mom for what she did to me, but she not only took away my dad and brother, but she took away my lifestyle, my livelihood, and my independence. Diane Stoudy was sentenced to three life terms with no possibility of parole. In 2022, she was interviewed on the American television news program 2020. In it, she now claims she was not guilty of the crimes for which she was sentenced. She spun a story about how her husband, Mark, had been connected with, quote, very dangerous people. She claimed that while in prison, she'd learned that someone had put a hit out on Mark. Was she now saying she wasn't responsible? That she hadn't poisoned her husband as she'd confessed to detectives, she was asked? Diane claimed she'd, quote, only said what I was told to say. I'm saying there's more to it than people know. She added, I'm saying someone probably came in and gave Mark something. She now completely denies anything to do with the murders of her husband and her son and the attempted murder of her daughter. Police have gone on record to state that they have no evidence suggesting anyone else was involved other than Diane and Rachel Stoudy. Nor have there been any reports of Mark Stoudy being involved with dangerous people or targeted by a hitman. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Please tell us what you think. Was Rachel Stoudy controlled and manipulated by her mother? Did Diane convince her that she would kill herself if Rachel didn't help her do away with the people she claimed were the source of her stress? Or was Rachel a willing accomplice who wanted her mother's attention for herself and the financial gain the life insurance would provide? Please interact with us on our Facebook fan page or comment on the YouTube video. Before we end today, I have a special treat for you. I had a conversation with my friend and fellow podcaster, Laura Norton, host of the Fall Line podcast and One Strange Thing. We'll talk about how we met at the beginning of our true crime podcasting journeys and about her new book, which releases tomorrow, October 17th. The book is titled Lay Them to Rest, On the Road with the Cold Case Investigators Who Identify the Nameless. Lay Them to Rest is a fascinating look into how cold cases are investigated when the victim's identities are unknown. You'll read how Laura and forensic anthropologist Amy Michael investigate the case of Ina Doe, an unidentified woman whose head was found in an Illinois park in 1993, through the use of the rapidly evolving tools of forensic science. Let's go to that conversation now. Stay tuned at the end to find out how to purchase the book for 20% off, but you only have until tomorrow when it's released to get this special pre-order discount. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So the first thing I wanted to say is welcome, Laura. L welcome to the show. I am so excited about this, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But, uh, you know, say hello to the listeners, because I, mean, I know they, a lot of them probably know your voice. Some of them might. Um, you and I have worked together before. We've been friends for a long time. Um, but for folks who don't know me, I'm Laura Norton. 
I host two shows. I've hosted The Fall Line for six years and One Strange Thing, gosh, for three years, just this September. So I've been around for a while. I know that I was listening to The Fall Line before I met you. Um, I think maybe mm-hmm. it was my sister Yolanda that told me, oh, you have to listen to this. And then we went to CrimeCon. I believe it was Nashville. I get them mixed up, but I think it was Nashville. Yep. And uh, and that's when I think I met you. And my sister, she walked up like she already knew you. And kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we we talked. So Yolanda was one of the first people um, I became friendly with in true crime. And then thus you. like So you and Yolanda and a few other people were some of my first friends in the community. But like I said, I was already a fan of The Fall Line. That's a true crime podcast that covers missing persons cases, unsolved homicides, and unidentified John and Jane Doe's. You focused on a specific region of the country on The Fall Line, correct? We largely focus on the southeastern United States. Like, we will go out of that region if we're needed to. So we have gotten um, tapped in to cover a lot of missing and murdered indigenous women, um, girls and relatives cases through one of our contacts, Carolyn DeFord. Um, she works out of Oregon and so she'll and also Washington. And so she'll ask us to cover cases and that can be, you know, anywhere in the United States. Um, but generally, we cover the Southeast, and some of that's practical um, because we live in the Southeast. So sometimes we need to travel. Um, I have a lot of law enforcement contacts in the Southeast, so it can be easier for me to get records, right, or mm-hmm. make a call or sometimes travel. So that was kind of the first practical application. And the other part was simply that um, in the Southeast, we have a lot of lack of coverage of cases. Mm-hmm. You get very deep into the research in a lot of different ways. Is that something that you've been driven to do? Or is this just part of the process that you found that you have to do research in order to get these answers? Both, right? So I think that um, my academic background trained me for that. Like, it's a pretty useless skill, like in the (laughs) practical world, right? Um, So I come from uh, English as my degree background. But in creative nonfiction, of course, you learn to do, um, you know, a lot of research. And I taught students how to do that, like how to find stuff that's not really findable. Um, but when we started covering cold cases where no information was available, because, you know, all of us who do intensive research, you have to have something there to find. And so when I started covering cases where little to no information was available, what you have to do there is primary research. Mm-hmm. So you have to actually produce your own research. You have to go out into the field. You have to interview people. You have to find, you know, census records and then pull them together and then realize how they create a story. Um, you have to find cases that exist around the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to go out and talk to people and say, okay, well, there's nothing on this, but have you heard of other stories that are related? Do that kind of research. So it kind of involves a combination of archival research, reporting, um, finding related things, doing research on stuff that may not even feel like it has a direct connection and just kind of putting out feelers and seeing what may culminate together and form this cohesive whole. So that skill set just ended up being something that was practically useful because a lot of people want to cover these smaller stories, but mm-hmm. there's nothing there for them to cover. Right. So our goal was to say, hey, maybe we can kind of create that knowledge base. And if it's there, families can take it other places and say, look, you can do something on this. And then people who are responsible can properly cite it and can use it and can say, hey, you know, take this to the news, take this to your local news station, and they'll say, hey, there's something here. We can cover this. And hopefully that gets the ball rolling. So it takes somebody to have enough motivation and interest 
and drive to actually go and do that because it is legwork. You're traveling and you're you're going into all these dusty files and things to find stuff or or looking online. It's quite a bit of work. And I could tell that when I started reading your book here, and we'll talk about that because I want people to really get an idea of what the book is about because there's so much to it, but the way that it's put together is so readable, which I really appreciate, which now makes sense because you said as an English professor, I was an English major. I love true crime books that give you so much detail and explain something, and yet you can read it almost like a novel, like a story unfolding, right? Um, So there's a little bit of all of that in uh, Laura's new book. And we'll get a little bit more insight and a fascinating look at an unidentified victim of a so-called Jane Doe case in her new book called Lay Them to Rest on the Road with Cold Case Investigators Who Identify the Nameless. And that, um, that book is just coming out. Is that correct? Yeah, it'll be out October 17th. I have so many questions about this, but I'm sure as, as we're talking, you'll probably answer a lot of them. But if you can summarize what readers will learn when they read Lay Them to Rest, because there's a few things there, I think, that uh, you can kind of pull out as far as, not, like I mentioned, the investigation, but there's more to it. Yeah, sure. So my goal in this book was I was approached to write a book a few times, but especially after we did a really intensive season on the victims of Samuel Little. Um, and I didn't ever want to write about a serial killer. But what I did want to write about was I had been working on unidentified persons cases with scientists kind of off the show for a couple of years. And what I'd had to do was learn about forensic science because I didn't have that language. I didn't have that background. Liberal arts major, right? Um, I had avoided science like the plague. <laughs> yeah. But suddenly I had all of these files and I needed to understand the language and understand what people were doing. And I had all of these kind experts that had been explaining things to me um, and teaching me so that I could begin to understand, okay, this is outdated. This has been done. This hasn't been done. This could be done. This is what could help solve the case, right? And I was suddenly realizing that forensic science is something we talk about a lot in true crime, on TV, et cetera, but no one really makes it accessible to the average person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am the average person when it comes to science. I am the reader. I am the lay person. So as I was working on cases and realizing, here's why this case gets solved. Here's why this case doesn't get solved. I thought I would really like to create a book that walks people through that, that teaches them sort of a brief primer on the history of forensic science as it relates to unidentified people, shows people the issue we have with unidentified people in America um, how many John and Jane Doe's there are. I don't think people realize that because John and Jane Doe's get the least amount of coverage. And that's because it's difficult to tell a narrative story about a John or Jane Doe because their life has been separated from them. So, you know, it's hard to cover that story. There's very little there. But if you look hard and you understand the science and you understand this and that, you can create that story. So I thought if I could help people understand all the scientific techniques, how they've developed, how fascinating they are, the frustrations that are there, the limitations. And if I walked people at the same time through a live investigation as it was happening that I was involved in, it could really illustrate sort of like how exciting, heartbreaking, frustrating, um, and it's sometimes, you know, really, really fulfilling these experiences are when a case that seems maybe even impossible gets solved. And I was able to follow that case with several colleagues I was working with, from an anthropologist to DNA scientists, you know, who eventually were able to identify the victim. 
the genealogist who identified her, and I was able to follow their work. And so it just came together. So my hope there was to not only help people understand the science, but really give them the feeling of being involved in a case step by step as it's solved. I know one of the things that I was reading in the book that I didn't think about is like, people always say, oh, DNA, DNA. I think everybody thinks that's like the the magic bullet now. And it, it's not always the case. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, I'm working on um, several cases right now that have no DNA available. I'm working on a couple cases where there are no remains available. Uh, and I'm, I'm about to start a big project where there's no DNA. And we're going to work on identifying several people. You know, DNA, you can't play it down. I mean, it's changed the game from the labs that are able to develop the profiles to the incredibly talented genetic genealogists like the Redgraves who are featured in my book. They're doing amazing work. But when they're not able to do it, we have to remember that before DNA, people solved cases every day. Mm -hmm. So there's always still hope, you know, and I wanted to show people all the science that exists before DNA. Yeah. And the thing is, too, I was thinking about this. I would imagine a lot of them, like you said, get no publicity, get no attention at all. It, it really seems like it's kind of the luck of the draw, like which ones get solved. Have you, have you found that to be true? You know, I think that the newer cases, of course, have a better chance of being solved because we have the most contemporary detectives working on them. It's really when we're looking back at these older cases, you know, cases where people had no idea that you know, forensic investigative genetic genealogy existed, cases pre-even classic DNA testing, where people did not know that you needed to preserve remains mm -hmm. necessarily, where people were cremated, where people were buried in indigent burial grounds. Those are the cases that are the hardest. Right. Because, you know, records weren't kept, especially in the 1980s. I tend to find that's the worst period. Hmm. Because in the 1970s, people were often buried. Um, but in the 1980s, the big push towards forensic anthropology, um, which is a good thing, but people were often being, you know, taken to labs to be examined, but paperwork would sometimes be lost. And so trying to figure out precisely where people's remains went or, you know, buildings were changed, you know, for one law enforcement agent to another. So even trying to track stuff down sometimes or simply maybe an office has perfect records. But they have 100 cases from the 80s mm -hmm. and then 100 cases from the 90s. And so they're getting new cases every day. And what are they getting public pressure for? Right. They're getting public pressure for the newest cases. So I, I think our listeners are going to want to know, what's this case that you're talking about? And what I want to know is, how did this case come to your attention? The case that we worked on in the book is the case of Ina Jane Doe. She was a woman whose partial remains, um, just her head and a few vertebrae were found in an Illinois state park in Ina, Illinois. That's why she's called Ina Jane Doe. And that's Wayne Fitzgerald State Park in January of 1993. And this was a case I'd known about for a long time. And also my working partner, Dr. Amy Michael, um, she's from the University of New Hampshire, but she's from Illinois. So she grew up in rural Illinois. She and I had both known about this case for a long time. Um, and it's because the case had really, really distinctive forensic art. And it's one of those cases where you feel like if someone had seen the art and recognized the art, they would have identified the person as a loved one or someone they knew. And that's because um, the woman in question, as she was drawn, was said to have really asymmetrical um, facial features. So if that was accurate, then, you know, someone would have recognized her. It was really well circulated forensic art. So we felt that within 30 years, someone would have known, would have seen it. 
and no one had. So Amy reached out and we got permission to work on the case. So my part of that was to do a lot of research, of course, into missing persons that had been newly put into NamUs, into people who'd never been entered, looking into, you know, regional uh, crimes that had happened, you know, not just in Illinois, but in other areas, um, looking into uh, similar crimes that have been committed in different places, you know, just gathering as much information as possible. And the more she discovered um, about the decedent's physical state, the more I could do research. Um, we brought in other people. We brought in a dentist to do an examination of her teeth. We brought in a new forensic artist, Carl Koppelman. We brought in Astraea Forensics to do the DNA testing and the profile. And then, of course, um, most importantly, we brought in forensic genetic genealogists. So there's a lot that went into identifying this person. <laughs> and you guys will get all the details in the book. And again, it's called Lay Them to Rest. I wanted to ask you, what was the part of this investigation that you found most fascinating or that intrigued you the most? I always want to figure out why someone wasn't identified, right? I know Jane Doe's file, it was 400 pages long. So they had done some really intensive um you know, work on her file. They just done a lot of work. You know, there was a full anthropological exam, all the stuff you would expect to see. Mm -hmm. And yet she hadn't been identified. Amy and I sat down and had to say, like, what can be done now? And so as we did each thing, the hopes there that that's going to be the thing, yeah. you know? So, okay, new skeletal analysis. Maybe we'll find out that she was not the age that was first assumed, mm -hmm. right? Maybe that will be the thing. Having a new um, dental profile, maybe we'll find out something new. Putting the new art out there, maybe the first day someone says, oh, you know, that's my sister, that's my mother, you know? And so each time you do that, there's this sense of like, maybe this is the key, yeah. maybe this is the thing. Each of those things was surprising and exciting to me, each little piece of information that clicked in, because this case was solved by DNA and genetic genealogy, but it could have been solved by any step. And so all of that is always fascinating and interesting to me because each of those things did need to be updated. You talk about the science of this in the book. Most people don't know about this or even if they've heard about it, it's not something that's easy to understand. I really appreciate being able to read, lay them to rest and get an idea now of how each step of this process actually works seeking to solve these cases, which I know a lot of my listeners are really into. There's one more question that I had. If there was one case that you know about that you could get all the resources that you needed to do a deep dive into and, you know, maybe look to, to solve it, which case would it be? Have you, do you have like a dream case that you've always thought, I wish I could get into that one? Yes. Um, so I, can, I, can I tell you too? Yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. There's, there's one that I'm working on now that no one's heard of that's keeping me up all night. And then there's one in Georgia. So the first one is uh, one that people may have heard of. It's the case of Christmas Doe. And this is a child, Jane Doe, here in Georgia. She's called Christmas Doe because she was found around Christmas time. She was around somewhere between two and four years old. She was found in a rural area. That's a case where, though it's the GBI, and we can usually work with the GBI. I haven't been able to get interviews. I haven't been able to get the case file. Um, I would really like to see that case solved. That's a case that I would really like to work on. I think her case is solvable. A case I'm working on this very moment um, is a case where, um, unfortunately, the person's remains are gone. Um, and all I have to work with is a really, really thin file that I do have. This is a man that was found in Nashville in 1988. 
And he was found laying um, off in a ditch. He had a ring on that was a really unusual ring um, for now, maybe popular in the 70s. It was a gold ring that had a shiny stone on it, maybe hematite, maybe not. Can't tell because the pictures are blurry. But it had either a Trojan head or a centurion head or maybe maybe a Spartan head on it. Um, and it was bluish. And he was wearing a Casio watch that had been adjusted forward for daylight savings time. That's all I got. Hmm. I have his clothes, I have the watch, and I have the ring. And I have one article about it. I have one picture and I have four pages of a file. So I'm trying to work from that um, to figure out who this is. If any of your listeners can help me with that one, um, I don't have a lot of money, but I will uh, come up with something to reward you with. <laughs> I'll figure it out. And what so area? What, what area was that in? Did you said again? Nashville. 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 That's right. Okay. Oh my, my accent. I'm so sorry. Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> like Nashville. <laughs> yeah, it just naturally comes out that way. <laughs> so the last thing I want to just say is what's next for the fall line, and also how do they get the book? So people can pre-order anywhere they get books, Audible, indie bookstores, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If people order by the 17th on the Hashet website, they can use the code uh, Lay Them to Rest for 20% off. There's also two pre-order bonuses they can get if they order by the 16th. And they can find that information on the Hashet website if they just scroll on down. There's an exclusive podcast episode and there's a Zoom hangout that is there. And we'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. So you guys better rush to get that and get that if you want that special uh, bonus and the and the discount. I would I would do it now anyway. I know you're working on this investigation. Is that for the podcast or is that what, what you're working on for the fall line right now? Or It's for the fall line, but also like I have to keep working on it after the fall line. Yeah. Um, we have a big season on Tennessee Does coming out. We've been working with Tennessee for a while. Um, we have 22 of their cases right oh, now. Wow. We're doing that in November um, on the fall line. And then we have a big season working with um, two daughters whose mothers are missing that's coming out after that. So, yeah, I'm just putting out my enjoyable paranormal content. Oh, yeah, that, you know, yeah. that's my relaxation. So Called One Strange Thing. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a nice palate cleanser, I think, in between the, the investigations and true crime cases. <laughs> I think it's really great for uh, for this month, too, for spooky month, right? There's a lot of really, really cool, interesting, strange things. I'll put a, a link uh, and the name in the show notes so you guys don't forget. Any last things about what's what's happening for you? Just um, doing some talks around various places um, for the book. Excited about that. Theoretically working on a novel. Um, but mostly, oh, wow. you know, just working on sharing the book with as many people as possible. Um, three years of my life. So that was pretty wild. You yeah. Know, working on the case, writing the book. So. Really happy to have such wonderful friends that are around to talk to me about it. Um, it's, I'm really grateful for that. So, and I really appreciate you having me on to talk about it and share it. No, oh, thank you. It's been a really fascinating discussion. And I got to say too, I love the book cover. I love that book cover. It's so cool. I don't know it's who beautiful. did it, but it looks great. <laughs> I wish I could tell you his name. Um, it's in the finished copies, um, but they forgot ship my box <laughs> so it's coming this week um and it has his full name in it and i yeah. was like someone please tell me this man's full name because it's beautiful it and i want to tell everyone yeah um <laughs> but i will know as soon as my box arrives so i can <laughs> compliment him so thank you so much i really appreciate it and uh good luck with the book i'm sure it'll do great and uh yeah have fun on those talks that's gonna be fun that's always cool after all the work you know you get to actually sit and just talk about it which is nice to share with people right just sitting in a room by yourself 
writing and researching for years on it. That's what we do, right? I mean, it's yeah, our job. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate it. Thanks, Esther. I want to thank Laura Norton once again for being on the show. To purchase the book, Lay Them to Rest, and get 20% off, go to hashitbookgroup.com and use offer code Lay Them to Rest. But you must purchase by October 17th, so go there now. Once Upon a Crime is written and produced by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Emma Battaglia provided research for this episode. Until next time, be good to one another.